0: is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Why is the church so important? I mean, why do we gather here every single Sunday and do the exact same things? Sing, pray, read? Is it important because it's cultural? I mean, it's just the way we've always done things. Is it important because it gives us a way to express our pent-up emotions or to make sure our kids get good moral instruction? Is it important because we're creatures of community and we need community and other people in our lives, whether it's through church or the rotary or yoga? Why do we spend so much time and effort on the local church? Well, we're in a sermon series working through the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to a young church leader named Timothy, who's working in the city of Ephesus during the first century AD. And as we've seen, Paul's instructing Timothy how to lead the local church, especially as false teaching is circulating in that congregation. He wants Timothy to know how to rightly structure leadership so that the church grows in godliness. And this morning, halfway through the letter in the passage Ashley has just read for us, we see Paul give his purpose for writing this entire letter. I love when authors do that. Here it is. So let's look at that purpose together, and then let's look at two truths. First, the gospel creates the church. The gospel creates the church. And second, the church upholds the gospel. The church upholds the gospel. So first, the gospel creates the church. Look there at verse 16. Paul writes, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We saw that word mystery last week, right? It doesn't mean something hard to understand, but something once hidden now revealed. This mystery is the mystery of God's plan of salvation, the gospel, how it was planned for years and then brought to fruition at the coming of Jesus Christ. Back in verse 9, he called it the mystery of the faith, and now he calls it the mystery of godliness. And if you think about it, godliness has been a theme of this letter, hasn't it? And we've seen an emphasis on godly living and how true gospel doctrine must lead to true gospel living. We've seen that what we believe will always impact the way we live. So if I believe the meteorologist when she says it's going to be in the mid-90s, I will dress and act accordingly. If I believe there's going to be a spike in oil prices, I will try to fill up my car as soon as possible. What I believe is true will influence the way I live, and the same is true for the Christian. What we believe about God will evidence itself in the way we live. We will grow in godliness. I think a good working definition of godliness as taught here in First Timothy is this, conforming our lives to the truth living like the gospel is true so what is this mystery of godliness we've seen it's god's plan of salvation but more specifically as we see here in this hymn in verse 16 this mystery is jesus it's his person and work there in the second part of verse 16 paul goes into it by quoting what appears to be an excerpt from a hymn or a poem or a creed in the early church that would have been familiar He just gives an excerpt, six short lines describing the truth about Jesus. So let's look at it line by line. First, he, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. Paul begins by affirming the truth of the incarnation, that is, the truth that Jesus took on human flesh. Perhaps you'll recall back in the Gospel of John when John says, And the word, pointing to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. As a church, we should stop there and just think. We must never tire of rehearsing the truth of the incarnation. The truth that Jesus gave up his rights to equality with God so we could put on our weak flesh and live the life we were meant to live and die the death we deserve to die. In order to complete God's plan and save us, Jesus needed to become like us. In every way, except without sin. Without the truth of the Incarnation, the gospel falls apart at the seams. Without the Incarnation, Jesus can't hope to bear God's wrath in our place. Without the Incarnation, we're hopeless. But praise God, Jesus did take on flesh. He did bend down to save rebels like you and me. Why? Well, next we read He was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus' claims throughout His earthly ministry to be the very Son of God were vindicated when He rose again by the Spirit. We see this clearly in Paul's writing in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. There He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? by his resurrection from the dead. If you think about it, when Jesus rose again, it was God's declaration that he was victorious son of God, having slain death in our place, having taken our sin and vanquishing it, having taken God's justice and satisfying it. You, if you think about it, Jesus had a predicament, didn't he? Jesus became sin for us, and sin deserves God's punishment. Jesus deserved God's punishment. How might he be vindicated? How might he be proven blameless? By rising again in power by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on. Jesus was seen by angels. That could point to numerous times throughout Jesus' life and ministry, but I think it probably primarily refers to Jesus' resurrection and how angels testified of it. You think about the angels at the tomb. As women the women came and pleaded for information about where Jesus was. I love those words that the angels uttered. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here, for he has risen. You see here, the angels Seeing the risen Christ and testifying to it. Testifying to the good news that death had died in the death of Christ. And next we see that that good news was then given to the church to proclaim throughout the world. It says Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. So in the days and months and years after his appearing to his disciples, following his resurrection, this gospel message spread across the world. And over the centuries since, it has touched the four corners of the earth. There are still people, peoples, today who are hearing it for the first time. And that's why we continue to proclaim. We don't proclaim a strategy. We don't proclaim a religion. We proclaim a person, Jesus himself. Next, we see Jesus was believed on in the world. This gospel news has gone out and it has shaken the world. The message has borne fruit. The gospel always accomplishes that for which it is sent. It always accomplishes its mission in either one of two ways. It either saves or it condemns. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the gospel is either an, an aroma of life or a smell of death. You can either accept it or reject it. You can't remain neutral. Praise God, though, that this gospel has been believed on in the world. And then Paul finishes out this excerpt of this hymn with the ascension of Christ. He says there in the final line that Jesus was taken up in glory. So after his earthly ministry, after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of his father. And folks, he's coming back. This hymn of faith takes us. Do you see how it takes us from the humiliation of the Savior all the way to the exaltation of the King? This is Jesus. This is our King. This is the good news of what he's done. May our hymns that we sing be as chock full of gospel truth as this one. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You don't understand yourself to be one who believes in this. We just want to let you know this is what we believe. Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to take our sin on himself. He died on the cross, bearing God's judgment in our place, and now he reigns on high and will come back again. See, your sin, whoever you are, your sin must be dealt with. In a world created by a moral God immoral actions cannot just dissipate into the ether. They must be dealt with. There must be consequences, or else God is no longer moral. He's wicked. So either your sins, however big or small they are, either they will be credited to your account and punishment will be handed out to you, this punishment of death, or your sins can be placed on Christ, and he can take your punishment for you, giving you salvation. If you haven't done so yet, turn to him. If you don't know how, come talk to me afterwards or talk to somebody else sitting next to you and let us, let us tell you this great news that has saved sinners like us. And dear church family, this gospel that succinctly summarized in, this six, in these six lines, this gospel creates the church. It's this truth that makes us a Church. It's this truth that makes us alive. It's this truth that saves us. It's this truth that creates us to be what Paul calls in verses 14 and 15, the household of God, the family of faith where we become one in Christ. A church without this gospel is not a church. A church without the gospel is merely a social club because only the truth about Jesus creates the church. See, we aren't gathering today as a local church because we have common preferences or common backgrounds or common politics. We gather this morning because of the gospel, because it's changed us, and it's made us part of the same family. Indeed, even the visible signs of the gospel that we celebrate here, baptism and the Lord's Supper, even these things are the things that Practically make us a church, aren't they? How do you join the church? You're baptized. How do you continue in communion with the church? You partake of the Lord's Supper with your family, commemorating the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel creates the church. Secondly and finally, if the gospel creates a church, then the church upholds the gospel. So, look back at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, Paul's hoping to come back to Ephesus at some point, but it kind of appears that he's expecting a delay. And so, he writes this letter first to Timothy, the pastor but then also for the good of the whole church. So we'll see at the end of this letter, he he writes to the church and he says his goodbyes to them in, in the plural. He's writing this not only to Timothy, but to the church, giving instructions on how to organize the body of Christ. That's his purpose for this letter. Look there in verse 14 or 15. Which one is it? Verse 15. He's writing this, that they might know how to behave in the household of God. What do you think about that word behave? I think that word can sound negative to us, can't it? It sounds like something that we're about to hear that's going to kill our joy, take away our fun. I mean, when I hear the word behave, I flash back to being a kid, where behaving meant good etiquette, proper table manners, and basically anything that meant your parents wouldn't be embarrassed by you. And of course, behavior and rules are necessary in every household. Otherwise, chaos reigns, which sometimes it does. But here we see that even the household of God has household rules. But I want to be clear. This code of behavior, this godliness, this thing that we've seen Paul teach that elders and deacons and men and women are to act like in the Sermons we've seen recently, these commands are for those who have already been saved, brought into this whole household of God. And that's super important for us to remember, brothers and sisters. These instructions are not about mere outward compliance. Perhaps some parents are content with outward compliance, but God never really puts much stock in it. He's always after our hearts. And so his prescription for the behavior of his church here has to do not with proper behavior for proper behavior's sake, not for proper behavior for appearance's sake, but proper behavior to evidence our new life in him. Behavior that will operate like a window into our hearts to see what we truly believe. Godly behavior for a Christian never precedes the gospel. It always proceeds from the gospel. See, every other religion that you'll go to will say, do this and you'll be saved. The gospel says, you're saved, now go and live like this, accepted by God. I don't know about you, but that's freedom. That's a code of behavior I can get behind. That's not grudging obedience. That's the light in the face of God shining on you in acceptance through his Son. So Paul instructs Timothy to lead and model godliness for the church, just like every Christian must lead and model godliness for the church. And notice there that Paul says that this household of God is the church of the living God. This points to the idea that God now dwells in his church, that he saved us, and now he's present with us. I don't know about you, but that might cause you, and I hope it does, it causes me to kind of catch my breath a bit. We've gathered here, and God is with us. Not necessarily through a tingly feeling, but we're promised he no longer dwells in a temple or a tabernacle, but in his people. He calls his church his temple now. Many of you have heard this all your lives, but it bears repeating, the church is not a building, and that's pretty obvious when you meet in a high school cafeteria. The church is an assembly of sinners bought by Jesus' blood and indwelt by his spirit, united to him. And notice there, Paul says this church belongs to the living God. As we started out singing this morning, come people of the risen King, we're reminded here that this God is not dead, but alive. Teens and and young people, the church and the truth of the gospel, sermons, Bible studies, they may seem boring at times, but they are not lifeless, they are not dull. If you read the scripture for what it really says, it never tells you to be good for the sake of being good. Good behavior just for good behavior's sake. This truth is alive because it belongs to a God who is alive. As you grow up and leave your parents' home, you will be promised life in other places. And those things will look really attractive. The world will hold things out and say, do this and live. Come alive. But if you stake your identity and your life and your meaning in those things, those things will be crum- will come crashing down on your shoulders. You'll only leave disappointed and misery because anything that promises life apart from Christ lies. Find life in the living one. Okay, does that sound vague? Have you heard that stuff before? Does it sound like church speak to you? Do you wonder how actually you can pick up your Bible or listen to a sermon and feel alive? I'd encourage you to approach a member of the church who you esteem as godly and ask them to disciple you. Ask them if they would pray for you. Ask them if they would sit down and read a book with you or have coffee with you. And show you how they've experienced delighting in God. Have you ever thought about doing that? That's what the church does. Concerning this church of the living God then. Paul says something spectacular there at the end of verse 15. He says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the truth that we thought about in the first half of the sermon. The the church is a pillar of that truth, that gospel, that truth about Jesus. But what is this so what does this mean? Pillar and butchers of the truth. Butchers is a funny word, you know? Well, we're familiar with, with pillars in Loudon County, aren't we? Many of the pillars we do see are fancy facades on the front of McMansions, but we understand what pillars are designed to do. They're designed to hold up weight. Maybe you've renovated a home and you found you couldn't move a certain pillar that was in the way because it was load-bearing. It held up a portion of the house. That's a pillar. It's not just there for looks, it's there for a purpose. In a similar way, a buttress is an old word that means foundation or support. So both of these terms are talking about stability, how the church upholds the gospel. But, But how is that possible? I mean, doesn't God support the gospel? Isn't the gospel true objectively, regardless of what the church does with it? Yes. Yes, we just talked about how there wouldn't even be a church if it wasn't for the gospel. The gospel creates the church, creates what's happening here. So what does Paul mean when he says the church upholds the gospel? Let me give you three ways the church, even our church, is called to uphold the truth about Jesus. First, the church defends the gospel. The church defends the gospel. We thought about this a bit last, or a couple weeks ago, when we thought about elders in the church, right? Elders lead out in this, but the whole church as a a group defends the truth about Jesus by teaching and equipping others to know and understand the Bible faithfully. We do this by preaching truth, hearing truth, humbly submitting our lives to God's word. John Stott says the church is responsible to hold the truth steady against the storms of heresy and unbelief. The church is a pillar supporting the truth, defending it against error. Because there will always be teachers who will seek to distort and pervert the gospel. There will be teachers who want to please whatever their church wants to hear, their itching ears, and and kind of change and amend and detract from the true gospel. Church, we, this church body, is called to obey and protect the truth. To keep the gospel undiluted and pure as we communicate it and teach it. If that sounds important, it's because it is. I think just thinking about this one thing alone will make church feel less of a weekly drudgery. Realizing this, that the church is called to hold up and defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ makes the church feel much less like a Sunday routine and more like a body with a weighty privilege. We defend the gospel. Second, the church proclaims the gospel. The church proclaims the gospel. So in God's mysterious providence he's chosen to proclaim this powerful message of salvation through weak people like you and me this makes his grace and power all the more non-ignorable the church is full of ambassadors for this news this is how sam albury a pastor in england puts it he says there is a way in which god's truth depends on the church not that the church approves or decides on what the truth is but that the church is the means by which God's truth reaches into his world. The church is an earthly outlet for God's truth. The embassy that represents him. Christian, do you see how important the church is? Do you see how important it is in the proclamation of the gospel and the salvation of the lost? That's why here at Loudon Valley we try to emphasize so much on beginning new churches. The the popular way of calling it is church planting, but it just means starting up new churches. Not just here, but around the world. The church is the primary way the gospel spread after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now 2,000 years later, the church is still the primary way the gospel will reach the nations. The church defends the gospel. The church proclaims the gospel. The church shows the world what Jesus is like. Thirdly, the church lives out the gospel. If the world wonders what this gospel is, God has intended for the church to be a place where it's made visible. If people wonder where, what the reconciliation of God to sinners in the cross looks like, they can look at the church and see the reconciliation of sinners through this gospel. The world wonders what mercy looks like. It ought to look at the church to see our mercy towards one another. In our love for each other and our unity in Christ, we make the gospel visible to a lost world. Jesus teaches this in John 13 when he says to his disciples, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. They'll know you're Christians if you have love for one another. So Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, you are a pillar of the truth. And you do that by living and testifying to what the power of Jesus Christ can do for sinners. And how you care for and love for one another imperfectly. But out of the strength of the Holy Spirit. The truth must not just be communicated from the lectern at the front. It must be substantiated and evidenced in the the pew or in the green plastic chairs we must not just say the gospel in our words we must live it in our lives this is one of the reasons we believe in church membership and discipline church membership and discipline helps us tell the truth about the gospel by bringing in those that we have heard testimonies of and seen baptized and then proclaim According to our knowledge, this person is a Christian and they are walking with him. They're telling the truth about Jesus. And then when some fall into sin, of which they're willing, unwilling to repent, as we saw in chapter one, being lovingly disciplined by the church. So as they to make sure their lives don't lie about Jesus Christ. In both ways, we hope to show the love of Christ in how we love one another. Dear church, may we not tell the truth about Jesus with our lips and then lie about it with our lives. Christian, as a member of this church, your personal holiness and your pursuit of Christ is more, is always more than just your private duty. Your personal holiness, your devotion to Christ has to do with your larger church family. You're you're part of something bigger, and your walk with the Lord affects not just you, but all of us. Because our corporate life together is a testimony and a witness to what the gospel does as we repent and believe. How it unifies us and changes us and humbles us and saves us. So I wonder, how does the idea of church settle on your ears this morning? Perhaps you've been in churches that have not been pillars of the truth. And we should be clear again, that church was not a church at all. Perhaps you've been in churches that don't say all the right things. Or do say all the right things, but, but are hypocrites. And don't live lives that match their words. And if that's the case, brother and sister, I'm sorry. The church ought to be full of sinners who aren't okay with their sin, who are seeking repentance and growth. The church must be a place that upholds the gospel in our teaching, in our defense, and our living. But as we wrap up, I, a question occurred to me as I thought about this text this week, and I thought I'd posit it to you. Loudon Valley, dear church, what does our church uphold? What are we a pillar of? When people look at us, what do they see us lifting up? Do they see our preferences? The way we educate our kids? The way we vote? Do they see us upholding ourselves, our own moral virtue, our good standing in society? Do they even see us upholding our specific brand of evangelical Christianity? Dear church, may we always and ever primarily hold up Christ. May he be the message of our words. May he be the one we proclaim. Brothers, sisters, the the church is so much more than just a gathering of religious types. It's a pillar of the truth. May we defend this gospel, proclaim this gospel, and live out this gospel until we die or our king returns, until all the ransomed church of God is saved to sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, we're all yours. We are not yet what we want to be, but praise you, we are not what we were. Use us in any way you will to make your glory known through us until your son returns. Lord, we ask that you would do what you do, and you would be gracious to to give us insights by your spirit into how we can greater uphold the truth of the gospel in our congregation, in our defense of it, in our proclamation of it, and in the way that we show it and make it visible in our love for each other. I pray that none of us would leave this morning feeling like we need to make that happen in our own strength, but that we would turn again to the mystery of godliness described in these verses And that our obedience and unity would merely overflow from our love for you and what you've done for us. We pray for your mercy, we pray for your grace to us, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.